John chapter 19, as many of you will know, describes what is known as the intense sorrows and sufferings of Christ, the severity of his treatment at the hands of sinful and cruel and wicked men, and the catalogue of pain inflicted upon the body of our Lord Jesus Christ is a fearful one. I know we don't want to get into too much detail in a meeting like this. I've been in meetings whenever uh, the description of the cross and the sorrows and the brutality of the sufferings of Christ have gone beyond what I feel is scriptural. And scripture is silent on some things, but it gives to us enough to understand what Christ endured. I said last evening, I repeat it again, we must always view the sufferings of Christ and everything that was done to him either at the hands of cruel and wicked men or when he was on the cross and the undiluted wrath of God fell upon his only begotten son. We must view that in the light of the covenant of redemption, of our union with Christ. And if you're saved tonight and if you know Christ as your saviour, if you're born again of God's spirit, if you have repented of your sin, accepted Christ as your saviour, then I want you to view what we're doing this evening and in these meetings and the journey to the cross and the path to Calvary in the light of your salvation. Because everything Christ suffered, he did it for you. Every pain he endured, it was for you. Every single treatment at the hands of cruel and wicked men, it was for you. The late Margaret Craig, maybe if you, many of you remembered the late Margaret Craig, she'd have gone around the churches singing. Uh, she was a personal friend of mine, and uh, I sung, or I preached at meetings and missions, and she was singing. She was a member of Lurgan Free Church along with myself, but she used to sing a hymn, Every time I sin on earth, I remember I'm the one. And you know, whenever I thought of that hymn, I often thought in prayer and oftentimes in preaching of what actually happened to Christ and to think that it was me who inflicted it upon him. Everything he suffered was for me. If you think of the slapping of the hand, it was my hand that slapped the face of Christ. It was my hand that literally busted open his mouth as we read there in John 18 there last evening and made reference to it. If you think of the spittle that ran down his face, it was my spittle that was mixed with theirs that ran down the face of Christ because he endured it for me. It was my sins that inflicted it upon him. Whenever they plucked the hair from off his face, it was my hand with all my might that gripped that hair and ripped hair and flesh from off his face. Whenever they plaited that crown of thorns, my handiwork was there as well. I took the reed along with others and I beat it down into his brow so that the blood flowed down his face. It was my hand that slapped him. I blindfolded and mocked him. It was my voice that was heard when they said, Who slapped thee? As if you're omniscient and you're God, then you'll be able to tell us who it was that slapped you. It was my hand that took the Roman scourge or whip and lacerated the body of Christ and made long the furrows upon his back. It was my hand that nailed him to the cross. It was my body that enabled others to lift him up and yank that cross into the ground and put most of his bones out of joint. I gathered with the crowd and cried. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. I wagged the head. I stuck out the tongue. I walked by and mocked and jeered as he hung upon the cross. With the two thieves I cast the same in his teeth because every time I sin on earth I remember I'm the one everything that happened to Christ 
And when he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was because of my sin. When he stood as my substitute. When he took my place. When he shed his blood for my sins. To meet the payment, righteous payment of God, death itself. And I will tell you now, child of God, you view everything we're talking about in light personally of your salvation and your redemption and sinner. You view Calvary as God's love to the unconverted, the fallen sons and daughters of Adam's sinful race. And you come in repentance and receive Christ as your own and personal saviour. The catalogue of pain inflicted upon Christ is a fearful one. The saviour had passed through a night of sleeplessness. I already brought that out to you whenever I mentioned uh, the trial of Christ last evening. I don't want to repeat it all, but John 13 begins what is known as the final night. There are many chapters given over to years. There are many books of the Bible given over to centuries. But few chapters are blocked together in Holy Scripture that cover one single evening. Well, you have chapters 13 of John's Gospel right through to chapter 19. And you can put them in literally to less than 24 hours. I believe in the late afternoon... Jesus gathered in the upper room with his disciples. It was there that with desire he wanted to eat the Passover meal before. And that's why we feel uh, we're not going into all uh, what commentaries and others are arguing about. And those higher critics are saying uh, that there were two Sabbaths in that week. There was the annual Sabbath and then there was the weekly Sabbath. And Christ wasn't crucified on Good Friday and so on and so on. And he didn't rise on the Sunday. And we've heard those arguments. Uh, We disagree with them. We believe that with desire... On the Thursday evening, if you protract your mind to Thursday coming, on Thursday evening, late in the afternoon, round about tea time, the Lord gathered with the disciples in the upper room. It was there that he had the discourse, the upper room discourse. He brought verse 13. He taught the disciples humility by washing their feet. He then spoke to them because they were discouraged that they were not to let their heart be troubled. He reminded them that temptation and dangerous times were coming, but they were to not be of a a, a discouraged spirit because they were to remember that he had overcome the world. He then gave his high priestly prayer. And then we know in John 17, and then John 18, the Bible tells us that he got up and he left. And he went down the southerly part of the city, of the old city of Jerusalem, if you look at the map. And he made his way through the Kidron Valley. And then about a mile to the Mount of Olives, he crossed over the brook Kidron. And then he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means the Garden of Pressing, where they press the olives, the Mount of Olives. And then you have the olive oil pressed out of the the very... uh, very oil pressed out so that it would treat even people who were sick, people who had skin disease. It would be used for cooking and all of these things. And it was pressed out and it was gathered. And Christ was put into the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Pressing. And it was there that he sweat great drops of blood for our sin. Think of it. That's what happened to him. And then about midnight, Judas came. He had a band of soldiers. Cost him about 30 pieces of silver to hire uh, these people to go along with Judas. And Judas took the money. They reckon it was only about, if you work it out, maybe today, maybe a few years ago, it was roughly, roughly just meagre pittance. Only a few pounds. That's all he really got. Didn't get much at all for betraying the Son of God. They tell us that when he came, uh, that he kissed Christ and identified him from the crowd. 
We cut a long story short. About midnight he was arrested and he was brought to the first place which was Anna's house. He was the former high priest and he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest. Some five sons of uh, Annas actually became uh, one after the other high priests in Israel. But I'll tell you this, at Annas' house he was, had a pre-trial and they accused him of blasphemy. And I want to tell you something, they wanted to do away with Christ quickly because the Passover was coming. No Jewish trial was permitted at night. They had to wait till sunrise, but they didn't. They had literally three trials before, just before sunrise. The first trial was in the house of Annas, and then they took him to Caiaphas. And there, about maybe 3 o'clock in the, in the morning, 3 a.m., uh, they began to about 1 o'clock, sorry, and then to about 3 a.m. They examined Christ through the night and they had the trumped up charges. They were waiting for the Sanhedrin to meet at sunrise, around about 6 o'clock in the morning or even 5 o'clock. But between 3 a.m. and 5, in that trial in the house of Caiaphas, even the religious leaders that were gathered, they slapped Christ, they spat upon him, they mocked him. And remember, he endured it all for you and for me, and he never opened his mouth. Furthermore, can I say to you, that he was taken then by Caiaphas, and he was brought before the Sanhedrin. Some 71 men judged Christ falsely. They accused him of, of blasphemy whenever he says, I am a king, and my kingdom is not of this world. And they asked him directly, are you the Messiah? And you know, if Christ didn't answer that, then that would be a denial. He wouldn't be the Messiah, but he says, I am. I am. And you shall see the Son of God coming in power and glory. And the high priest rent his garment. He says, what further proof do we need? He's guilty of blasphemy. In other words, the Lord was saying, there'll become a time when you will stand before a higher court than the Sanhedrin. You will stand before me, the judge of all. That's what he was saying. I'm not only Messiah, but I'm the coming king. I'm the coming judge. I am God Almighty, veiled in human flesh. And they rent their clothes and they charged him with blasphemy. But Roman law did forbid the Jews putting anyone to death under their law. And therefore they couldn't put him to death for the charges they supposed he said he was guilty of. They handed him over to Pilate. Pilate took him, examined him at the pavement. He went back in. He talked to the Jews. He went back out again. He sent him over to Herod. Herod mocked and laughed at him and he never answered a word. And he was sent back to Pilate. And then Pilate examined him for the last time. And then had him scourged. Six different trials. It's the greatest travesty of justice in the entire world. It's the greatest miscarriage of justice inflicted upon a human being, the son of the living God. Unjust and unfair. And I want to tell you, when, when he stood before Pilate, whenever he was crowned with thorns, the Bible tells me that, and it intimates here, that he hadn't slept at all, a full night's sleep. Interrogated by the religious leaders. Brought before the highest political power in the land. Examined. Found no fault in him. Declared innocent on at least 16 occasions. Individuals said that Jesus Christ was without sin. Without fault. Called him a just man. Had no guilt. Even the thief on the cross. We justly. But this man has done nothing amiss. And even Pilate's wife said. Have nothing to do with that just person. And so on. I find no fault in him. Remarkably, isn't, remarkable, isn't it? And alongside that, it was the Passover. I believe at the same time, paralleled, uh, Jesus Christ was in Pilate's judgment hall and he was being examined by Pilate. At the very same time, parallel to that, 
investigation and examination was the high priest and was the priests of Israel and they were selecting I believe at the sheep gate a lamb for the Passover sacrifice they were inspecting that lamb they looked at its fleece, its eyes, its mouth, its teeth, its tails, its feet and they examined it and they found a perfect lamb and they lifted up and they literally says this is the lamb I find no fault in this one that's the exact same time that Pilate was examining Christ the Lamb of God. And he said of Christ. I find no fault in him. It was paralleled. To the feast of Passover. And then he was handed. For scourging. But before that. Pilate and his men. Had taken Christ. And they had scourged him. What a wicked thing to do. He was viciously slapped. With a hand. And with a reed. Those crown of thorns were plaited and placed on his brow and they were beaten onto his head by the reed. They literally beat that crown down. They couldn't push it down with claws or with their hands. They had no leather gloves to push it down. It would have pierced the very gloves. And they beat it down with a reed. They spat upon his face. They ripped their hair from off his face. And remember they had scourged his back and his body was just running with blood. And then he brought him out as a spectacle of woe. Before a mocking crowd and said to the Jewish religious leaders and to the crowd of the mob that they had hired to shout crucify. And he says, behold the man, behold your king. And Christ thorn crowned, bloodied from severe beating and he received at the hands of cruel and wicked men. Christ was then taken and marched as a spectacle toward the crowd and he cries, behold, behold the man. And that's exactly what I want to do, only in a better context. Behold the thorn-crowned Saviour. We looked at the trial of Christ last night. I want to think of the thorns upon his brow, the thorns of Christ, the meaning of those thorns. I want you to think, behold the man, thorn-crowned. I want you to think of what those crowns mean, or that crown meant and what those thorns mean. First of all, I want you to consider as we behold the man that the crown of thorns symbolize the curse of our sin that he bore on his own body on the tree. If you will turn with me to the book of Genesis, and it is important just for us to read a few verses. I very rarely multiply verses. I know whenever we were in college, we were taught never to say, turn to your Bible, turn to this one. Uh, and I remember there were boys who did that, and they turned and turned. It half the Bible read. And you did believe them. You got to the point. You said, brother, I believe you. I believe you. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. They turn to that many passages. But I don't want to turn to many. And I very rarely do that. But chapter 3, it is important. If you look with me at chapter 3. And at verse uh, 17. And the Lord speaks. Chapter 3, verse 17. And unto Adam... God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which, which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of the face of uh, shall thou eat thy bread, till thou return unto, ground, unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Notice it says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground. Verse 18, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. Do I have to remind you, child of God, dear unsafe person, uh, you should know at least that thorns are part of the curse upon our sin. Uh, there was no thorns in Eden. 
whenever Adam was in the perfect state, when he was created in innocence, and there he walked with God until he sinned against God, and then God cursed the ground. I know that I joke because whenever my wife, I don't eat vegetables, and she would do broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, and she would place them all out, and I would say, a sign of the curse. <laughs> the ground will bring forth all of these things, but those are good vegetables. Eat them, folks, because I didn't, and that's why I'm only this size. Uh, but I will tell you this. The thorns and the thistles and the briars are symbols of the curse. If you want to see something of the gospel in the earth and creation, you can see it that the ground brings forth thorns and thistles and briars. And it's a symbol, it's a sign of the curse. Eden was a garden of paradise, wasn't it? There was no sin, no death, no curse there. There wasn't a single briar, there wasn't a thistle, there wasn't a thorn in the garden of Eden. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Thorns are a symbol then of God's curse upon our sin. Now think of it. Thorns are a symbol of God's curse upon our sin. There would never have been a thorn in the earth. Every time you see a thorn, a thistle or a briar, and you're pricked by it or you're hurt by it or you're scratched by it, it draws blood. You remember it was never there. It came as a result of Adam's sin. And the Bible says that our Lord Jesus Christ was crowned with the symbol of the curse of sin. Now think of it. He who is holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners, the sinless, spotless son of the living God, the one who was impeccable, the one who was righteous and holy and pure, yet he wears the symbol on his head of the curse of our sin so when they crowned Christ with those thorns though they were doing it in mockery God permitted it because it was a symbol upon the kingly and lovely brow of Christ that he was in fact showing forth his glorious purpose in coming into this world to bear in his sinless spotless body the eternal and the terrible curse due for our sin. In Hebrews 6 and verse 8, we read these words. We'll not turn to it. I told you I don't multiply verses. But in Hebrews 6 and verse 8, take my word for it. It says, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Christ wore the symbol of rejection. The symbol of the curse. That which is beareth thorns and briars is rejected and nigh unto cursing. Listen to this. Whose end is to be burned. And you think of that. It's really a picture of the sinner rejected by God. A picture of the sinner under the curse of sin. A picture of the sinner at his end in sin. Hell itself to be burned for all eternity. And Christ takes the symbol upon his head. And it pictures exactly what he came to do. To be rejected of men and despised. To be nigh unto cursing on the tree, for cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. And to bear upon his kingly brow the very curse for our sin. And then eternal burning. Christ was roasted. Think of the Passover lamb. It had to be roasted with fire. It speaks of the intensity and severity of the sufferings of Christ. When he was literally roasted. In the fire of God's wrath. That's why I do believe that Christ took my literal hell on the cross. I believe that. The people who argue against that. I believe that he endured my hell. Everything that I should have suffered in hell. Separation. Eternal thirst. 
rejection, cursing, whose end is to be roasted, burned. And Christ endured the fiery wrath of God upon our sin, who knew no sin. Christ was unwanted by his own nation. Christ is still rejected by the world today. The religious leaders, those who are in high office in our nation and in this country, they reject the atonement of Christ. We did a mission one time and there was a minister who said to his people, don't be going to that mission. All this nonsense about being born again and saved, you don't need it. He stood up in his pulpit and he said of the mission we were conducting, he told his people, don't go to that mission. He told them not to go. One of those men in that congregation came to that mission and a few years later that man got saved. I'm glad he didn't listen to his minister. I'll tell you this. He says basically all this slaughterhouse religion, you don't need it. You do. You need Christ to suffer. You need Christ to have died. You need Christ to have endured the undiluted wrath of God and to be burned in the fire of God's wrath because your sin was laid upon him. It's the only way God can deal with sin. Do you see how big sin is? People play it down today. It's a mistake, you know. It's just in your genes. It's not. It's just the way you're born. I want to tell you it's more than that. Not just some fault at birth. It's an inherited nature from Adam. Whereby we are willfully disobedient to God. And we cannot do what's right. We cannot turn from our wicked ways. Such is the defilement and the disablement of sin. And sin is so big and enormous that no holy angel or highest archangel. And no man at his best religiously, educationally or morally could ever pay for sin. God Almighty had to send his son. It's the only way he could have dealt with sin. Think of it. How big is sin? They play it down. Sure, it's only a wee white lie. And you people majoring on sin, you make me feel guilty. One man said to his mother one time, he says, Mum, I don't go to your church, you know. Why don't you go to my church, son? I'll tell you why, Mum. Because I go to my girlfriend's church. And see, when I go to my girlfriend's church, I come out feeling good about myself. But when I go to your church, I come out feeling bad. I want to tell you something. A sinner should never come to a gospel meeting and feel good about themselves. If that is the case, then I have failed you in failing to warn about your sin. I want to tell you something. Your sin is an offence to God and it has to be paid for. And you have nothing to offer God. Sin is not some mistake that you have made. It's not some little fault or flaw in your character. Sin, the Bible says, is transgression of the law of God. Sin, my friend, is a universal and it's a moral and it is a social evil. Sin, my friend, marks you out for judgment. Sin must be punished two ways. God only punishes sin two ways. God does not Sweep sin under the carpet. <clears throat> if you learn nothing else in this mission, I want you to learn this. God punishes sin. He does not cast it behind his back. He does not simply forget it. He does not forgive it. If someone offends you and they come to you and they say they're sorry, you say, I forgive you. God doesn't work like that. God does not work like that. That is not theologically right and it's not scripturally true. I want to tell you what God does with sin. God punishes sin. There's never an occasion. Now listen to me. Never an occasion. And God doesn't punish sin. He does it in two ways. One, personally, on the sinner in hell. God punishes sin. Two, vicariously. That's a big word. 
It took me about four years in Bible college to learn that word and about 20 years under Mr. Douglas to, to, to perfect it. It simply means by means of a substitute, Christ. God punishes sin on the sinner personally in hell. Which will it be? Or vicariously on the sinless perfect body of Christ. Which will it be? See, sinner, if you come to Christ tonight and repent and believe, you will find, and listen to me, you will find that your sins, all of them, have been perfectly met on the body of God's dear Son. You will find that all those sins have been punished on the body of God's dear Son. But if you do not come to Christ, and if you die in your sin, then listen to me, then you will pay for those sins yourself for all eternity in hell. It's an amazing thing that God says, I have no death or no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. What does he mean by that? Turn the coin over. Let me give you another statement. When he speaks of his son, it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to death. Isn't that a strange thing? He hath no pleasure in the death of one that dies and goes to hell. No pleasure. But he has pleasure in punishing sin upon his son. How do we explain that? Very simply. Because justice can never be satisfied in hell. God can find no judicial pleasure. Except his justice upheld and righteousness fulfilled in the punishment of the sinner. But that punishment will never end. It will never be satisfied. You will never find peace with God in hell. You see, friends, I have no problem with hell. None whatsoever. I've often thought, now you can tell me that I am weak and I'm liberal. I've often thought, I've even asked God in prayer, Lord, is it true? Is it really true that hell burns? A place like that. I've had disturbing nights thinking about it. Sleepless nights. I don't know about you. Have you? I have. I've wrestled with God about eternal punishment. I don't doubt it. Here's my problem. The word forever. That's what I cannot get my head around. Forever. 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 Lord, I've asked the Lord. Do you mean forever? You know what God said to me straight out of his word. Matthew 25. Thomas, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. And other verses of scripture came to my mind and instantly it hit me. I want to tell you something, it disturbed me. I honestly believe, wrestling with God, that I felt at one stage my heart physically would move. Shift. Such was the torment of the thought that my friends, my loved ones, if they die without Jesus Christ, the Son of God, they will perish. And their unbelief and their denial of hell will never wish it away. It burns as I speak. That's why there's a need for the preaching of the cross. That's why there's a need for the exaltation of the blood of Christ. And the exhortation to you, sinner, to come tonight, repent, and believe the gospel. Can I say to you that Christ not only rejected, as it says about thorns, but Christ literally hated and reproached and put to shame by those he came to save. They handed the Saviour over to the Roman soldiers for cruelty and crucifixion. 
There on the cross, Christ, the thorn-crowned saviour of sinners, bore the divine fire of indignation and wrath against himself when he became accountable for all the sin of all his believing, repentant people. Now the Spirit of God cries out, doesn't he? He takes the words out of Pilate's mouth and he takes the mockery out of this scene and he says to you, sinner, and he says to you, child of God, behold the man. Behold the thorn-crowned saviour. He bears upon his brow the very symbol of what he's about to do. To die the just for the unjust. To bring us to God. That he might pay the price for sin. That he might deliver us from eternal ruin in hell. That he might take us safely to heaven. And give us eternal life and peace with God. And the joy of sins forgiven forevermore. And whenever Pilate cried to a mocking crowd, Behold the man. Behold your king. The Spirit of God takes Christ tonight. And he's standing in this room now. Right now. And I want you to see him, sinner, as the thorn-crowned Savior and the Spirit of God saying to you, Behold the man, Christ Jesus. And what are you going to do with him? What will you do with Christ? What think ye of Christ? Tell me. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ tonight? You will decide tonight. You will either be for him or against him. Choose him or refuse him. Take him or turn away from him. You will either receive him or you will reject him. For neutral you cannot be. For someday the Saviour may be asking, What shall I do with thee? What will Christ do with you? You see there's a judgment in kind. Reject the Lord, he rejects you. Refuses offer of mercy, he refused every cry from the pit of hell. Luke 16 clearly teaches that. Christ, Paul tells us, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is he, or everyone that hangeth on the tree. So when we are exhorted to behold the man, the Holy Ghost is saying to you sinner tonight, behold The one who took sin's awful curse and endured the undiluted wrath of God upon his own body on the tree. The Spirit of God is saying, behold the one who would suffer the fire of divine wrath and judgment for sin upon his own body at Calvary. He's exhorting you to behold the one who would be pierced through with the thorny wrath of God's indignation against sin. And it tells us there, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Christ rejected of men and is nigh unto cursing. He bears the curse of our sin. And then whose end is to be burned, roasted in the fire of divine wrath at Calvary. God's covered the earth in darkness. No human eye or divine eye or angelic eye or satanic eye. A religious eye was ever cast upon the sorrows and sufferings of Christ when he was in the fiery oven of God's righteous indignation against sin. And he bore it all. I believe deity upheld humanity as Christ bore the terrible eternal weight of sin. None of the ransomed ever knew. We'll never find out what it meant for Christ, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. Tell me, where do you stand with God? Is it well with your soul? You know, we will, God willing, be conducting another gospel mission in a few weeks' time. We'll be down in Six Mile Cross preaching the gospel for a couple of weeks. And then we have planned a gospel tent crusade as well in our own church in Cumber. I've already got the banner, and it's being used now, but I'll get the banner. It's an old banner that R.A. Torrey, it's not the same one, by the way, 
It's just based on the words that he used. If you go back and you see some of the photographs, R.A. Torrey and all of the gospel campaigns, they called them revival meetings and so on. It had a great banner at the back of the pulpit and it said basically, get right with God. Get right with God. And underneath the words, boast not thyself of tomorrow, Proverbs 27.1. We have the banner and all. It's the length of this war for the mission. Get right with God. What a way to preach the gospel. I want to tell you something. I don't know what church you go to and it's none of my business. But if you don't go to a church that tells you to get right with God, you're in the wrong church. No matter what denomination you're in, if you're a minister or you're elders or anybody who comes to preach does not tell you that your sin is an offense to God and you need to get right with God, I want to tell you you're in the wrong church. And even if it says it's evangelical, I want to tell you if it came the day when the free church never told you you're to get right with God, you should leave it. In the old church in Lisburn, they had that banner up on the wall. They had Lisburn Free Presbyterian up in these letters. And it was that old, it was dilapidated. Some of the letters had fallen down. You just about to make out Lisburn. You probably make out re instead of free. And church, you'd have been able, but Presbyterian, forget about it. We children coming to our Sunday school and children's meeting, all they could see was this broken down name, Lisburn Free Presbyterian Church. Just all these letters missing. They could never read it. They didn't even know what it was, but there was a huge banner, and that's what it says, get right with God. And one time they were in school, and the little girl was there who came to our Sunday school. And the teacher says, do any of you boys and girls go to Sunday school or children's meetings? And a lot of them put their hand up, and where do you go? I go to the Methodist, I go to the Presbyterian, I go to the Elam. And this wee girl had her hand up, and where do you go to? Well, she didn't know. It was Lisburn Free Presbyterian Church. You know what she said? I go to the Get Right With God Church. <laughs> that's a good church to go to. That tells you to get right with God. That's a wonderful church to go to. A church that tells you. And love to your soul. That your sin is an offence to God. And you need to get right with God. Yet you have nothing to offer. Nothing to give. No worth. No merit. No value of saving merit at all. Nothing. But Christ has done it all. Christ has paid it all. Behold. The thorn crowned saviour. Wearing upon his kingly brow, the very picture, the symbol, the illustration of the curse and condemnation and the wrath of God to fall upon our sin. I want you to think secondly, not only of the curse of our sin symbolized here in the crown of thorns, but I want you to think of the character of our sin. And there is a difference here we're going to make because in the making and in the mockery of the crown of thorns, it symbolized the very nature of sin itself. You see, sin is literally a rejection of the authority of God. John calls it and he summarizes it's the greatest scriptural summary of sin you'll find in all of the Bible and you theologians probably will disagree with me. But it's found in 1 John and it said sin is transgression of the law. That's what it is. Sin is transgression of the law. It's as though God says something to the sinner. He draws a line. And there's a, a white line across here. And he says to the sinner, I want you to stand before that white line. I do not want you to cross that white line. You know what sin is? It's lawlessness. It's saying to God, you not tell me what to do. And it's literally looking at that white line, the commands and laws of God, and it's saying, you not tell me what to do. And it's standing over that line. That's what sin is. It's defiance. Do you know what sin is? If I could use this reverently, it's like taking God himself by the very labels of his coat, putting your hand there and your hand on his throat, 
and putting him off the throne and stamping him under your feet. That's what sin is. We play it down, don't we? We play it down. And the newspapers play it down. And they make little of it. One preacher preaching on sin in his own church, one of his members, a female met him at the door. It could easily have been a male, by the way, so we're not discriminating. And she said to that preacher, she says, I like your preaching, but I do not like how strong you are on sin. I don't like it. I love your preaching. You preach on the love of God. I don't like it when you're preaching so strong on sin. You know he said, Madam, come into my study. Come into my study. And he brought her in. And there it was, up on the the very shelf. There's a little bottle of poison. I don't know why a minister would ever have a bottle of poison in his uh, study. So if you ever called into the minister's room for counselling, just have a wee look around. And if he offers you a drink of water, say, definitely not. I'm okay. I'll do to get home. But he says, madam, what's that? And she called out the name of the poison. He says, you know what you want me to do in that pulpit? Let me tell you what you want me to do. Here's what you want me to do. You want me to take that name, Strickling. You want me to do away with it. And you want me to put a new label on that. And here's what it says. Essence of peppermint. And what would you say if I did that? Oh, you can't do that. That's poison. He says, so is sin. You want me to play it down? You want me to be liberal with it? You want me to compromise with it? You want me to water it down? That's what you said to me at the door. He says, I like your preaching or you preach on the love of God, but you're too strong in sin. He says, Madam, you're asking me to change the label. I'm not prepared to do that because it's a poison and it will kill sinners in hell. And I need to preach against sin because the only way that you can see Calvary in its true light is in the dark backdrop of sin. Do you know if you're a jeweler, hopefully you're not, maybe you are, you want to sell diamonds, you'll put them in the front window and you will get a dark backdrop and you will get a, a white neon light shining on that diamond. And that diamond is best seen in, a, in that white light, but it's best seen against a back, black backdrop. That's the best way to present a diamond. It's the best way to view a diamond. If you want to view a diamond, you can lift it up to the light. You can give it a couple of turns, and if it starts to glisten and turn different colors, it's a true diamond. Ladies, you try that at home to see if your husband has bought you a true diamond ring. Maybe got it at Nudge Corner. Not that we're advocating that, folks, by the way. It might not be, and you turn it up. That's not moving at all. That light must be bad. That's what your husband will say. But I'll tell you, if you want to shine the diamond and see it in its true light, put a dark, black backdrop. Put a bright, shining light upon it, and you will see it. If you want to see Calvary in its true light, one man said to me one time, you know, whenever you're preaching in the gospel, he's what he says, you don't get to the cross soon enough what he said to me and I was troubled about that I says what do you mean oh he says I like to get to the cross right away right away and I went home and I prayed about that and I asked the Lord about that when I read scripture I find the cross comes after sin I find the cross doesn't have any real meaning unless it's viewed in the light of sin you see the diamond of God's love at the cross is better seen against the dark backdrop of sin. I want to tell you something, friend. You need to face your sin. And listen. Now listen to me. Look at me. You need not fear looking at your sin tonight if you have an eye to the cross. 
You need not fear a holy God in your sin tonight if you have an eye to the blood of Christ. You don't need to fear if you keep your eye upon the Savior and you keep your eye upon the cross. You see, the crowd of thorns on the head of Christ symbolize man's rejection of God's rule, his authority to rule over them. We have young people tattooed today and they actually do say, only God can judge me. This big massive tattoo on this girl's arm and she just holds her hands out. Only God can judge me. But that's true. God will judge her. But what they really mean is nobody and they don't believe in God. So they're really saying nobody can judge me. And you know what the young people are saying today? It's drummed into them now. Don't you listen to your parents. They have no right to tell you what to do. You decide for yourself what you want and what way your life will be and what gender you will be and so on. And don't you be going to church. Don't let them tell you in Sunday school that there's a God and there's a heaven and a hell and that Christ died on the cross. You just live your life as you please and don't you worry about rules and regulations and don't you worry about authority today and you just despise it and you just do as you please. I want to tell you something. That's what sin is and its character and its nature. It's rejection of the authority of God. Do you think God can tolerate that? Can God tolerate one single sin? You see, I remember writing a tract one time. We pushed it out on the Isle of Man. I think our brother Noel's going to the Isle of Man very shortly here, so he might meet the wrath of these people. But we sent out a little tract, and they called it simply one sin, one step, one saviour, and then one season. One sin. And I said in that, one sin takes you to hell. This woman took great exception to that. She phoned the Reverend Wesley Medole and she gave off. This came through my door. One sin. One sin. Is that what you're saying? One sin. Reverend Medole phoned me. What did you put in that tract? <laughs> he says, I put in Genesis 3. One sin. That's all it took. Many sins did Adam and Eve commit. One. It shut them out of the garden. Separated them from God. And sentenced them to what? Eternal hell. One sin. How many sins have you committed? A lifetime. Could you even enumerate your sins? You couldn't. Could you tell me now how many sins you've committed? Yet one sin separates between you and God. One sin shuts you out of heaven. One sin is deserving of eternal hell. You know why? Because sin in its character and its nature is a defiant rebel. It attacks the authority of the creator and tells God you'll not tell me how to live or what to do. It's a rejection of his claim of lordship and king to rule and reign in your life. That's what it is. And this symbol upon the head of Christ was a picture of man's sin. Christ would bear such rebellion and an attack against his authority. Rather than punish the sinner, Christ would take the sinner's place. Rather than punish the rebel, Christ would take the rebel's place. Rather than punish the transgressor, although we deserve it, Christ would take it upon himself. That's what he was doing when he wore the crown of thorns. He was showing his saving purpose, coming into this world to die for our sins. I'll move on very quickly. I'll use this as a conclusion for our time is definitely gone. You see, it symbolizes the curse of our sin and the character of our sin, but the thorns also symbolize the consequences of sin whose end is to be burned. And you know, hell was created for the devil and his angels and for all the nations and they're made up of individuals. All the nations that forget God. I want to tell you, thorns speak to us of pain. They speak to us of sorrow and suffering. They're placed 
and they're pushed upon the head of Christ. He feels the pain, the agony. It's a little mirror image of what he's about to bear. The pain of thorns, a symbol of sin and the curse of God upon it. Pushed down onto his brow. Christ begins to feel there and that scene there in Pilate's judgment hall at the pavement. He begins to feel there the very pain that he was about to endure. It was a symbol to the world and to Christ himself that he was about to endure the awful pain and punishment for sin. The cross was no mistake. It was God's preordained, carefully planned, divine will to save sinners. God the Father purposed before the world began in the eternal counsels with the Spirit and the Son, coexistent, co-equal and co-eternal, Father, Son and Spirit, and in the covenant of grace and redemption to send forth the darling of his bosom. And we've heard the Muslims and the, the, the Islamic religions coming onto YouTube and boasting that no Christian has an answer to their uh, questions whenever they say that Jesus Christ isn't God. And they quote a lot of things in the human side of Christ and what they forget is this that Jesus Christ, they say this they say that Jesus Christ isn't God because he did this and he did that can I say something to you, that Jesus Christ was truly human and a lot of those things Christ was submissive to the Father only in the sense of the role of Redeemer he's co-equal, co-eternal and co-existent with the Father and the Spirit and I want to tell you something, that it's in the role of Redeemer, that's why the Bible says in all things he has preeminence it doesn't mean that he's higher and greater than the Spirit or the Father, he's co-existent he's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit but I'll tell you what it means in role of Redeemer in function as the mediator between God and men and the saviour of the world, Christ has preeminence in salvation. He's preeminent in scripture. He's preeminent among the saints. He's preeminent in heaven and for all eternity. Christ in the role and function as mediator and redeemer of God's elect and the saviour of the world. He is preeminent. Christ is all and in all and in salvation. It's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the church. It's all about him. He's the only saviour. Is he your saviour? I close again with a deep sense of humility. As we stand before the spirit of God who says behold the man. Now where do you stand with God? Tell me. Is it well between you and God? Are you saved tonight? Are you born again? Tell me have you received the thorn crown saved? Have you taken him into your heart? Have you repented? Have you believed? Have you received? What keeps you back? Why are you not saved? Why will you not come tonight? Will you not say, now is the night for me? This is it. This is my moment. This is my time. This is my hour. This is the night of my salvation. Will you come? If you need help tonight, if you need to speak to the Reverend Harris or myself or some other person that you feel comfortable with, don't go away without the Saviour. Don't go away without Christ. I know we've gone over our time, but I trust the Lord will speak to your heart and speak to your soul and bring you in repentance and faith to Christ.